Welcome to the Sacramentalist, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We're your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker. I'm Father Creighton McElveen. And I'm Father Hayden Butler. And this is our last episode of this season of fall of 2023. We've had a lot of great conversations and we're looking forward to having some more in the spring, but we're going to take a couple weeks off here. So we'll be back maybe mid to late January with a lot, a whole new season and a whole new bunch of guests and a whole bunch of topics. Um, speaking of which, you know, as we're entering into this Christmas season, if, if you listeners have any topics you'd like us to discuss, now would be a great time to shoot us an email as we are getting ready to plan this upcoming season. So uh, anyways, but we are fast approaching the Christmas season. Uh, fathers, how are you doing in your many preparations? It's a, you know, it's full, it's a, it's a full press over here. Yeah. Uh, but it, in good, good things, you know, I always like this season because, uh, you know, there, there's an, there's an anticipatory joy, even among, amongst the fervor of it all. Uh, and, uh, it's been, it's been good, but I, I, I've been saying life is full. It's not, not, you know, busy in the negative sense, but it is, uh, it's noticeably full. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, in terms of the size of your parish versus mine, it's probably a little less full. Um, but yeah, we, you know, get, getting ready for, for Christmas is always fun. It's always a challenge logistically, um, but also tons of services and things coming up. So it's always it's always a fun time. Uh, and I, I, you know, at the same time, um, I'm still working on a new parish website. So I'm building that and hopefully it will be ready to go in the next day or two, hopefully. Um, So we'll be launching that in time for Christmas, which adds another layer of fullness, (laughs) trying to get that done on time. Any, any sort of transition during the season is sort of compounded in its complexity. So yeah, you're in a, it, it doesn't matter how big of a parish you are. You're in the middle of a transition and on top of the whole seasonal observances. So that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah, just trying to, you know, get a understanding of the parish and how it works and meeting people and also trying to encourage friends and acquaintances to come and the whole Podcast nine. Listeners. Yeah, um, if if you guys are listening and you'd like to follow our new social media, uh, which I finished making, uh, you can. On Facebook, it's St. Hilda's Inman Park. And then on Instagram, it's also St. Hilda's Inman Park. Uh, so give us a give us a follow and see what we're up to. I'll try to put that in the in the show notes. I feel like I say that a lot and don't put the thing that I say I'm going to in the show notes, but I mean it this time. <laughs> and when the new website launches, it'll be uh, St. Hilda's ATL.com. So which it should be out about. Well, maybe not when this episode comes out, but it'll be out around then. So. I'm hoping so. Yeah. Good. Good. Well, now you have to have it done by the time the episode comes out. <laughs> Waiting on domains to transfer and everything is like, yeah, you know, can can be a uh, a time intensive thing, and I can't do anything about it. Right? It's like, hey, I'd like you to transfer this domain name. All right, it could take up to 15 days. Yeah. Well, hopefully sooner rather than later. <laughs> This is a good uh, inside look for listeners who maybe want to know about the life of a priest that especially when you're in a parish, especially when you're by yourself or at a smaller parish with a smaller staff, that you are constantly putting one hat on and taking another hat off. So like 
you're doing sermon prep and then five minutes later you're transferring a domain name and then 10 minutes later you're looking at the financial reports for the last month and it's just boom 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 and then somebody comes to your office and needs pastoral counseling um so there's all that happening you know in one day so you have a to-do list and, a, and an idea of what you want the day to look like and then there's what god actually brings across your uh, desk which is usually very different that's exactly true but as the old headmaster at my at the school where I used to work said, there are no interruptions, only divine appointments. So there is something encouraging about that. That's a little bit like, you know, Gandalf saying a, a wizard is never late or early. He arrives exactly <laughs> when he means to. I was corrected recently. I quoted that in a sermon, but I only quoted the first part that he only arrives when he precisely when he or that he's never early, that he arrives pr precisely when he needs to. And somebody corrected me about that. <laughs> it was humbling. Well, today we are uh, jumping into a question and answer episode, which is a fun thing to do, uh, especially to sort of end the season um, after we get to talk a lot. We get to hear the kind of questions that you all are interested in. And so uh, we have four, I think, pretty solid questions for us to, to look at today. So the first question is, what is standing in the way of unity among continuing Anglicans? So fathers, what is standing in the way? Who wants to uh, put their neck out and answer that one? <laughs> oh boy. Uh, okay. <laughs> let's get, let's get cracking. Um, I'll take the first swipe at this one if it's all right with you guys. Um, you know, we, we were at the Synod recently uh, in, in, or in Orlando um, and I was, we, you know, we are, we're, this was the question of it. And I think as I've seen on social media, this has also been a kind of response to um you know, the events of the Senate, this was a question that was asked on numerous forums about what, what happened there. Um, because since the 2017 um, agreement of, of intercommunion between the, the kind of the four big jurisdictions that have now become the three uh, among the continuing Anglicans, you know, the question is, okay, so how, why, why are we just down to three? Why not two or one? Um, um, I think recently, um, you know, the Archbishop Haverland, um, who's the Archbishop of the ACC, he, he, he put out a, an interesting blog post kind of highlighting some of these things because I think the, the, the initial swipe at it is usually that, you know, it's just ego and like old grudges and things like that that are always standing in the way of, of, or, of you know, organic church unity. Um, and, it, you know, it, it turns out that not only are there practical difficulties and personal difficulties, but also, you know, moving forward, it's, it's a question of Anglican identity, too, that continues to be a point of meditation. He pointed out in his blog post that, um, you know, the even the, even calling something a communion of, of churches versus a church, um, you know, is, is a significant theological distinction um, that has uh, wide-ranging practical effects to it. And um, that's a question that's being asked among our bishops right now. Um, you know, there's also the, the idea of how do you practically combine the ministries that have been operating adjacently to each other um, and that's also you know that, that that that's a that's a meditation um to, to that that's being undertaken right now i think you know our work here together um you know with uh you know between acc and apa uh priests is is a is an indication that we're moving in that direction right and this is this is you know these kind of ministries that we we are starting and working on together uh is a good good move in that direction but when you think about, yeah, how do we combine the the kind of corporate structures and and ecclesial structures of, of multiple dioceses and parishes? Um, that 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 takes that takes time. And I think Archbishop has been um, you know vocal in saying, 
that we we can't pursue unity, um, you know, at the at the cost of greater division, right? Which is a possible thing too. So those are a few few of the concerns that come to mind. Yeah, I I always think this is an interesting question, and and I understand it, especially in light of the history of of what is now the G three, and there were a lot of splits that. Looking back, we're unnecessary personality driven, you know, internal politics kind of things, which are not pretty. But if you look at the last 10 to 20 years or so, <clears throat> all these church continuing churches that are now in intercommunion with each other have been moving in the right direction. And I think 2017 was a huge moment where we were saying we are recognizing each other as, you know, as as in communion with each other. And so, I mean, Father Creighton is serving at an ACC church despite being an APA priest. You know, Father Hayden, if you ever move to the East Coast, you are welcome to come work at St. Paul's. We would love to have you. So we can share clergy. You know, we share parishioners when they move to different areas. They might, you know, I had a parishioner who moved to California. I would send them to St. Matthew's without a question, you know. So there is a lot of unity already there and and i think that point of organic unity means it's it's a little slow going in terms of bringing about institutional changes and merging into one sort of corporate body but the the really important work of sacramental unity is already there um and i think that really needs to be emphasized especially in a world where you look at the landscape of the church and it feels like a lot of things are falling apart or or coming apart um and we're not we're moving kind of in the opposite direction so i think that's that's good and of course we long for institutional unity i think we'll be stronger together as one church than as three or four separate you know jurisdictions but um yeah like you said greater unity shouldn't happen at the expense of division um that would kind of undermine the whole purpose so i appreciate the caution that the bishops take and their prudence in working towards that and i know they'll be meeting here in a couple weeks i think to discuss that further I mean, I don't have tons to add to that. I mean, I think that's a pretty good overview. Um, but yeah, I mean, unity really is going to is going to work at a grassroots level first, and we already have that. We already have you know a great sense of collegiality amongst the clergy and the laity. Um, I know there are regional uh, clergy gatherings that are happening that that cross jurisdictional lines. Um, and, you know, I naturally cross jurisdictional lines. Um, so it's, it's not something that is sort of fabricated. It's just, you know, if the nearest church to you is a DHC parish and you're in an ACC parish or an APA parish, I mean, we're, we're going to have to interact with each other. And, and the, the natural thing to do is to, is to do ministry with each other and to um, support each other and, and things like that. So I think those sorts of things are already uh, happening and, and, and happening even more as time goes on and the unraveling and um, disentangling of all of the overlapping jurisdictional stuff uh, that takes, that just takes time. And it's, I mean, there's personalities to think about. There's already existing ministries to think about. Um, there's a lot to think about, but it is somewhat helpful that we're mostly on the same page theologically. Um, so some of that folding in will happen. It, like we said, it'll just take time. It'll it'll take, it'll yeah, it'll just take, you know, certain things happening and falling into place in the right ways. 
I think what this this question kind of draws out in in as we meditate on it, and as I think anyone could meditate on it, is, uh, you know, it it draws out maybe a, a a creeping assumption that, you know, unity is a matter of kind of 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 someone from the top just saying, all right, you know, we're doing this now, you know, and I think one of the you know recurring errors in a church that acknowledges a hierarchy of of orders and a an, a real sense of authority. Um, that the church uh, that the, the church possesses is um, is that that's how it works, right? We get this image of you know someone says jump and everyone else says how high and and you know and I think that that's a that's a false assumption in a lot of ways of how of how pastoral authority even jurisdictional authority really work, um, and, and especially if you're thinking about it in terms of of many generations prior to you and the implications for many generations ahead which as traditionalists were always kind of bound to do. Um, we can't we can't just, you know, jam together a puzzle piece, you know, just because we'd feel better in the moment for having that thing together. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so we, we have to think about maybe, maybe it's the case that our, I think, you know, we also think, you know, tend to think that our generation should be the one that realizes all the good things in its moment, um, which is a kind of secular way of, of approaching church. Um, it may be the case that our our entire lifespan is just like laying subterranean foundation for something that goes on to be the the visible unity that comes later on. You know, and one day someone will say, "Yeah, you know, Father Creighton, Father West, and Father Hayden were part of something that you know was the 120 years of of of, of you know of prologue before the story actually got told." And that'd be mm -hmm. cool if we were if we were a footnote in that story. So hopefully we can be American Church Fathers. <laughs> yeah, why not? Podfathers, as we've been called. <laughs> the Podfathers. <laughs> yeah. And also, also, I think one, one final thought that I, I had as you were talking, Father Hayden, is that one thing to look at in terms of health of the G3 movement, I think is less about whether we have a piece of paper that says we're all one or whether we have a corporate structure that is uh, identical, but rather to actually think about it in the opposite way, look at parishes, look at dioceses, then look at jurisdictions and then look at the kind of whole thing together. Um, and I think if you, if you flip it, you actually see some really healthy trajectories, a lot of growing parishes, a lot of really solid young clergy um, who are doing really good work in terms of formation and, um, and, and training and all that and doing really good liturgical uh, work as well. And so there's a lot to be excited about right now, I think in the, in the continuum and, and, and uh, if that change really is from the bottom up more than the top down, which I think most change is, then the signs are there to be optimistic. There's always things that can be uh, improved and things that we can do better. And we should always strive to do that. But I do like, when I look at the landscape right now, I'm actually very encouraged by a lot of the developments that are happening. So I'm happy to be where I am. I wouldn't rather be anywhere else, I would say. So anything to add to this first question about uh, about unity among continuing Anglicans? Well, hopefully we won't get any letters from angry bishops. <clears throat> so um, <laughs> yes, that's right. Mia culpa, mia culpa, mia maxima culpa. Um, the second question we got is uh, is a sacramental question, and it is how does the Anglican view of sacraments differ from the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox views of sacraments? I said they don't really. 
but yeah, you all I mean, can elaborate on that. I think that's that's ultimately the the answer is um, that we 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 share the same sort of sacramental theology. Uh, now that being said, I would maybe caveat and say that you know as we've discussed previously, Anglicanism is a spectrum, and so some people are maybe going to emphasize. Um, you know, a certain number of sacraments more than another. Um, but from an Anglo-Catholic perspective, the way we approach sacramental theology is the same way that uh, our our brothers and sisters um, in the Roman Catholic Church would, you know, uh, approach sacramental theology. Um, and I would say we do the same thing with the Eastern Orthodox. We just might use a little different language uh, to do so. And so there's a sense, I think, in Eastern Orthodox theology where um you know there's there's a view that that all of life is sacramental and there are specific sacramental realities that the church has and if you push on how many there are they're going to arrive at the same seven that we are going to arrive at and the same with the roman catholics um so at the end of the day you know we're we're all uh kind of operating from the same playbook and we are administering those sacraments uh, in the same ways. Again, uh, that language might look a little, a little different, um, but at the end of the day, you know, the the sacraments themselves are are born out of a combination of uh, biblical precedent and then also the church's worshiping life uh, and the 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 tradition, and so we all share a common uh, source there, um, and so. Yeah, I would I would ultimately just say, you know, we we do we do view them the same way. I would maybe caveat though our agreement in some ways. We I think in general we agree on more than we disagree, but I do think there are some real differences between an Anglo-Catholic view and an Orthodox view in particular um on a couple particular sacraments like for example, marriage and ordination. Um, so in orthodoxy, there is, you know, uh, I think a different explanation of how marriage works. Um, so like in the West, we don't really permit divorce and remarriage, whereas they sort of do. I mean, they um, they will have a period of repentance that you have to go through, but there is this belief that a marriage can just sort of die. And uh, the same thing is true of ordination, you know, um, when they talk about orders. Like when we talk about Rome, orders with Roman Catholics, they will point to particular ways in which our orders are invalid because of sort of technical problems, right? There's no talk about the sacrifice of the mass in the liturgy. So therefore it's an invalid form or um, intent or something like that. Um, whereas with orthodoxy, there is a sense of like, well, you kind of sided with the Western church, which is wrong. And so therefore you just sort of lost it. Um, so there is, I think a, a different conception of sacraments and I don't want to, caricature orthodoxy and i don't want to do it an injustice but the broad difference that i see generally is that for western christian sacraments tend to be fairly black and white and the reason for that is so that the faithful can have a certain degree of assurance like it doesn't matter if your priest is a bad guy or a good guy or whether he's a heretic or not if he's really an actual priest he's giving you the sacrament i mean it matters if he's those things but not sacramentally um, it either is or it isn't. Whereas in the East, there's this kind of 
uh, spectrum approach to these things that is uh, maybe confounds our Western sensibilities a little bit. So there is a, I think, a slightly different conception of the sacraments. I don't know that it's a terminally uh, different approach, but it is it is different enough that it, it, it can create some interesting friction when there's dialogue across boundary. It seems to me that one of the <clears throat> one of the critical differences between like West and East, we'll, we'll maybe start there, is um, is the way we think that kind of uh, that that grace uh, comes to you know meets with the material world, the natural world, right? How does how do nature and grace sort of uh, relate to one another and interact with each other? Um, and that being you know they're they're kind of varying hypotheses on either side of that divide for for to answer that question. And, and in the West, I think we might observe you know our own version of the of the question of how does like matter and spirit interact with each other and how does nature and grace interact with each other and and we've come to a, a spectrum of responses to those questions um, that differ from how the east has responded in their own kind of milieu with 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 those questions but that that trickles down to what we think you know sacramentalism is or sacramentality is um, and what it means for a sacrament to be a sacrament um, and and I think you know another way we look at this is the the kind of uh, maybe in the West we we may tend to focus a little bit more on um, the instrumentality of the sacrament, whereas over in the East it's a little bit more of a there's an epiphanic quality to it. Um, or over here we focus on it in isolation, a, a particular sacrament like the Eucharist, as you know what is this thing? How does it come about? Um, whereas in the East it's a little bit more. Um, it's couched within an irreducibly complex liturgy um, that can't be subdivided any further um, without, you know, not no without arriving at no longer talking about the thing we're talking about. And I've noticed that as maybe a, 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 a method difference between the two. Um, and then, of course, our, our mode of, uh, of sacramentally informed, uh, like ascetical rule, you know, it, it, it differs too. You know, we we go on saying, okay, what, how does this form the life of the Christian? Um, the answer to that, I think there are some real similarities. I also think there's some stark differences in how we think Christians, you know, then go from the sacraments uh, into, you know, living a sacramentalized life. Um, and so you know, that, that also strikes me as a meaningful difference. Excellent. So first we solve um, G3 uh, unity, and now we're solving uh, church unity as a whole. That's great. Our third question, um, which is from Emily, who's one of my parishioners and a, and a great listener to the podcast, and she uh, she hung out with us this summer as we read uh, Anselm's Curdes Homo. It was great. Um, she asks, can you talk a little bit about the influence of Western philosophy of the early church fathers and theologians and how we can reconcile this with verses like Colossians 2.8. Now, Colossians 2.8 is where Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe and not according to Christ. So this is an interesting question and I'll, I'll take the first crack at it if that's okay with you two. Um, we have to go through a couple different points, I think, to to uh, answer the question. The first point is we have to ask, what is St. Paul doing in Colossians chapter 2? Namely, which philosophy is he writing against? And scholars and readers of Colossians are not really in agreement in terms of what that is. Um, 
first of all, the use of the word philosophy is ambiguous because we have multiple uh, sort of second temple references in Philo, Josephus, and Fourth Maccabees where the word philosophy is used to describe Judaism or sex within Judaism. So it could be it's actually more of a kind of religion that St. Paul has in mind here rather than just a philosophical, as we conceive of it, philosophical worldview. Um, so the Colossian community, if you read the whole letter, is certainly embattled by some sort of false teachers. Um, some, one commentator calls them visionaries, non-Christian visionaries. Um, but who are they? And we don't know. There's not agreement on, on what they are. It's been proposed that it's some sort of mystery cult, maybe one that worships angels, because Colossians 2.18 says, do not let anyone disqualify you, insisting on self-abasement and worship of angels, dwelling on visions puffed up without cause by a human way of thinking and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows with a growth that is from God. So that's one theory. The other theory is that it's Gnostics, which I actually sort of lean to some sort of proto-Gnosticism. I think that would be one of my inclinations that that is what Paul is addressing here. If you read the early Gnostic writings, uh, they do present this really strange, they use scripture, but they present this really strange and complex network of uh, of um, of ionology, and it's 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 kind of trippy, and, and I could definitely see where, um, as a, from a pastoral perspective, Paul has to address that and, and kind of use this language to describe it. So there's that. Um, there's also a thought that maybe this is a kind of mystical Judaism or Judaizing that has infiltrated the Colossian church because there's that mention of angel worshipers, um, which is, again, there's some attestation in Second Temple Judaism that that was a tendency um, among some Jewish communities. And it would make sense because in chapter 2 and verses 16 and 17 and um, verses 21 to 23, Paul does talk about um, Sabbath observance. So there's got to be some sort of Jewishness going on there. Um, and then finally, uh, it's been proposed that this could be some sort of Greek paganism, like maybe cynicism or, or some maybe a more philosophical uh, perspective. Um, so nobody agrees really on, on what the philosophy is Paul's writing about. But the principle, I think, is good, which is that you shouldn't get taken away by a worldview that's not Christian in that you buy it in totality, that it becomes the controlling meta narrative to which you subscribe. Which is why I think he adds the phrase empty deceit to describe philosophy. And he also caveats that it's according to human tradition and elemental spirits of the universe, not according to Christ. So this is a teaching that supplants the word of God. And um, I think another point to consider is that in Exodus, God lets the Israelites plunder the Egyptians which Augustine and many of the other church fathers read, uh, Gregory of Nyssa is the same way, read that as saying that we can engage with the pagans, um, pagan philosophy, pagan mythology, and we can mine what's good in it, um, but not take what's bad. So we, where it's true, we can say, hey, that's true, and all truth belongs to God. It's exactly what St. Paul does in Acts 17 when he quotes pagan poets to the, uh, to the philosophers who are there. Um, he's saying, hey, your philosophers say something true. Let me explain how that's true. And so um, you do get that posture in, in a lot of the fathers where they will take what they perceive as true in Plato and Socrates and some of the others and, uh, and kind of baptize it. Aquinas does it with Aristotle later on, um, maybe more than some of his predecessors do. Final thing I would say on this is that 
while it's true that they do positively engage and look for truth in philosophers, that is not necessarily the entire witness of the early church towards the philosophers. So you do get like Justin Martyr says that Socrates and Plato were probably Christians in the sort of proto-Christian way. Um, and I think there's a lot of good there. We have a hymn that we sing in the hymnal that mentions um, uh, that God spoke through Plato and Socrates, uh, which is, I, it's a it's kind of an eccentric Percy Dermer hymn, but it's a good one. Um, I always kind of geek out when we sing it. But by no means does that mean that the early church was sold on Plato and Socrates 100% or that they bought all of their claims 100%. So a great counterexample to that is Origen's Contra Celsum, in which he's engaging with a Neoplatonist philosopher who was, I think, at one point a Christian or had been, he was familiar enough with Christianity but rejected it in favor of Plato and Socrates. And so Origen in that work is almost entirely negative in his treatment of Plato and Socrates. He says things like, well, yeah, maybe in some places they agree, but he kind of downplays the agreements and says, well, where they agree, scripture says it better because it's more accessible to people than the way that Plato and Socrates express things. They express it too high. So it's like a, a meal only for rich people or elitists. And uh, and the scriptures expresses things simply so that all can come. It's like a steak and potatoes dinner. You know, it's, it's, it's easy to access. So the point being, and 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 that's not the only thing Origen indicts about them. He indicts the fact that Plato offers sacrifices to the gods, even though he knows they're not real, and things like that. So he's he's very critical of of the philosophers in that work. Um, though, of course, if you read Origen as a whole, you know there are places where he positively engages with the philosophers. So, point being, it's a mixed and critical reception of philosophy, where I think the early Christians were doing the hard work of parsing what they got right and what they got wrong, condemning them when they got it wrong and praising them when they got it right and baptizing that truth, um, which is, I think, what we're called to do as Christians when we engage with culture. I think that's a marvelous answer. Um, I think I, the, the only thing I can think to add to that is, um, you know, I don't, I think Christians in their, in their better moments have not been afraid of, of, um, yeah, borrowing uh, where it is where it is helpful, um, and uh, and and even just seeing the world through that lens. It, you know, the 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 central encounter of the Christian faith with our Lord and on our communion with God the Trinity um, is is not threatened by um, a study of or a um, or even the 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 kind of borrowing another phrase from Justin Martyr, right? The seeds of the logos, right? That have been that have been scattered in the world. Um, and so to take what is truthfully said in Plato um, as a way of articulating what is, you know, you know, how we articulating how we know the logos to be right, how we know Christ, um, it is not a threat to our, our faith to do that. Um, and sometimes I think what is what is invoked by the, the, the drawing out of Colossians 2.8 um, is sometimes a kind of phobia against um, dialogue with with anything that's not already certifiably Christian, um, and that 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 is a that's an impoverished way of 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 being formed as a human being, but also of of um, bearing witness to the to who Christ is, because it presents a kind of unconfident and uh, um, fearful um, regard to the world. Like I have to hide myself from any idea that's not already prepackaged as Christian, because. Um, it might destroy my faith. And I, I, I put an asterisk on that saying, you know, there are some things that not all people should expose themselves to at any given time. 
Um, so there is prudence, prudence, you know, prudential reasoning that attends what we expose ourselves to and what we go on to inquire into. Um, but in general, right, we, you know, if, if, if Jesus, if, if Jesus is Lord, um, you know, and he is who, you know, we confess him to be, then, um, then we, we don't have to be afraid um, that of, in, of partial and imperfect truths, you know. Um, so I think I think that's worth saying in reference to that verse. And not to use an overused word, but it there's a kind of missional opportunity when we recognize where those partial truths are, because we can always ag- begin with an agreement rather than a disagreement or a, or a strong condemnation. And when you when you take that tactic, then you can, I think, more easily shepherd someone towards the, the full truth. You you slowly orient them, you know, hey, this is good. Let me show you. I think someone who does this really well in our day is Rowan Williams. Yeah. Um, I think his his uh his John Paul II lecture that he gave a few years ago, where he does this with liberalism. You know, I mean you read some of the Enlightenment philosophers from which liberalism uh springs and you like, yeah, there's not, you know, I mean they are not Christian uh, in any meaningful sense. Um but that doesn't mean that the whole thing is bad or that they don't say things that aren't true. And so Williams in that lecture does a great job, um, you know, kind of pointing out, hey, hey, you know, here's where liberalism, here's what liberalism gets right. And as Christians, we can kind of latch onto that and use that ap- apologetically and missionally. And um, and so I think, yeah, there's uh, that's the call. And, and it also helps, I think, to remember, too, that we don't really believe in total depravity the way that uh, maybe some reformed Christians do. And so we can still say that, well, of course, the human nature has experienced this fall and is, it has this sickness. That doesn't mean everything that humans think, say, do right is bad. Quite the opposite, right? There's always going to be some goodness in there. And the question is, can we mine it and, uh, and, and baptize it properly? Yeah, and I think at some level you can see this um, going beyond the question with the early church fathers and theologians. We can see this in kind of the grand narrative of the church's existence. You have uh, Pope St. Gregory the Great sending St. Augustine to the British Isles and telling him to baptize what he finds, um, to not disparage the indigenous populace for worshiping at a particular sacred well or uh, in a given place, but instead building churches there um, and engaging with the people based on some level of their uh, their understanding of the world and their place in it. You see this uh, time and time again as religious translation in the life of the church as it does missions. Uh, you see it in uh, you see it in the New World. You see um, missionaries engaging with indigenous tribes. Um, translating things into their language uh, making allowances for, oh, you have this concept that's very similar to Satan, but you kind of don't get what Satan looks like and it, how it works. Well, we're going to use the name that you already have to help you understand uh, who the enemy is, or you don't have a concept for sin at all. So we're going to have to do some work um, engaging with the ideas and the understandings that you already possess to get you to that point of understanding what sin is. Um, you see this in the Germanic uh, missionary activities. They had n- they were an honor-based society, and so they did not at all understand or engage with the idea of Christ sacrificing himself. In a sense, they saw that as, as you know, he lost the battle, he lost the war. Um, 
And so those sort of missionary activities really struggled when they used that language, but then they found, well, let's maybe speak of Christ as marching victoriously to the cross. Uh, let's see that as his, as his banner, right? The cross becomes this uh, battlefield emblem. It becomes his ensign. It becomes the thing that he carries victoriously against Satan, sin, and the world. Uh, and you, one of my favorite things, I've mentioned it before, I, I've got it behind me on the, the bookshelf, is the Heliand, which is uh, basically a gospel harmony for the Anglo-Saxons and Christ, you know, he uh, he has his spear thanes surrounding him, which are the apostles. And uh, the Pharisees are these evil magicians and uh, they they march victoriously to the hill fort Jerusalem and they take it. Um, so it's a it's a it's a it's a way of of getting at the same idea that uh, we affirm what is good, we critique what is bad. Uh, but as Christians, we confidently assert that truth is truth and we use it and we engage with it and we uh, sort of, in a sense, look for it too, uh, wherever we can, uh, because, you know, we're, we're all trying to understand the mystery that is God and our place in this world. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's good ways of going about engaging and there's bad ways. And, and we should, we should also not be scared as the church of saying, Hey, that maybe is a bad way. And I think to go back to father Hayden's point in the last question about orthodoxy and Western Christianity and all that at play here is an underlying assumption that I think you find articulated really clearly in a lot of the early scholastic Christians, which is that grace perfects nature it doesn't destroy nature and so if that's true then it means that christianity is not itself a culture but can go into any culture and transform it or perfect it and so when you so you don't a good missionary doesn't make you know some tribe somewhere american or british or whatever they make them Christian. They Christianize what's there. It's exactly what you were just saying, Father Creighton, about baptize whatever you find. And so if grace perfects nature, you can expect to find truth everywhere um, to varying degrees, but it's there. Um, and I would recommend people go back and listen to one of the earliest episodes we did called Pagan Christianity, where we talked about this, about how good engagement is extending a yes and a no. The gospel extends a yes to things and cultures, and it extends no's to things and cultures. And and learning how to parse that is really key to uh, to good, um, I think, evangelism. And the other one is our episode with Junius Johnson on imagination and cultural engagement, where he, I think, also gets at um, at some of this. But he uses really uh, fun language about you know engaging our imaginations and uh he's pretty cool when it comes to all that stuff so um yeah those two episodes i think would uh would also help um fill out some of these thoughts do you all have anything to add on this one well it's a bad dinner guest who talks about theology and politics and we've already talked about theology so let's talk about politics um i know there are probably a bunch of people who are cringing at the moment um Christian, who is a member of our Discord server, uh, even though he is a Baptist, we let him participate um, sometimes anyways. Uh, he says, I can't remember if you got into this in on your Christian nationalism or cultural engagement episodes, but maybe 
what would you consider the core tenets of Anglo-Catholic political theology in America and beyond? Uh, this is probably a question that deserves its own episode at some point, yeah. um, if we ever have the nerve to do it. Is there a singular Anglo-Catholic political theology? I, I would argue probably not. It's not, I mean, I think in like in reformed Christianity, you do get a sense of a really coherent political theology, but I think Anglicanism and Anglo-Catholicism even is diverse enough that you don't really have a singular political theology. Yeah, I think that's right. I don't think there is a singular political theology you could point to. Uh, that being said, I might say there are aspects to how you approach political theology that are probably going to be shared or at least I think should be shared amongst Anglo-Catholics. Um, so my mind immediately goes to an idea of like Catholic social teaching. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we can see uh, in Anglo-Catholic history uh, amongst, um, you know, Anglo-Catholic priests in the, say, the 19 teens and 20s engaging with things like rerum novarum, uh, and and sort of contextualizing that for themselves. And so you get a strong, maybe a, a strong sense of solidarity, a strong sense of subsidiarity. Um, and then in terms of kind of how, how politics engages with moral vision, um, at least advocating in whatever context you're in, be that in the United States, Africa, the UK, um, uh, what we could say is like non-oppressive or humanizing policies. Um, I don't think that's a that's you know the most fulsome list, but I think that is an approach that the Anglo-Catholic would take towards political engagement. Um, really trying to root it in the theological understanding of the human person, the human person in society, and then the human person and society relating to God. Um, and so you're, that, that comes across in sort of different ways historically. Um, you know, you've got politically conservative Anglo-Catholics, you've got politically liberal Anglo-Catholics, you've got uh, Anglo-Catholics who were socialists or communists. Um, you know, I, I think back to the, uh, Father Creighton's Anglo-Catholic corner I did on Conrad Knoll, uh, who was sometimes called Comrade Knoll because he was an interesting guy and, uh, you know, was was a a part of um, that sort of labor workers movement um, in England, and I think on all cases, right, be it conservative, liberal, whatever, um, at the very least, I think most of those individuals are trying to account for how the church relates in its social teaching, how it relates to uh, nation states in particular, as uh, you know, solidarity and subsidiarity work, um, and then how we ensure that the politics of any given country we find ourselves in are uh, advocating for the for human good and flourishing as the as the gospel and the church define those things. So it's kind of an answer and a non-answer. <laughs> no, I think that's right. I, I think that it. it, it demonstrates the tendencies that we we exhibit whenever we consider political questions, which 
Um, that, and that seems like a really thorough and accurate way of, of, of kind of showing the range of, of our tendencies and the kinds of questions we, we, should, we can do and should ask around those questions. Another one that comes to mind is, uh, that seems to me, you know, Anglo-Catholic is, we have a, we have a, I would say we have a, a, a restrained view of, um, you know, like, and this isn't distinctly Anglo-Catholic, I'm kind of borrowing from the larger, I think, Catholic perspective on society is, we have a limited view on, on, the, on, on the perfectibility of social conditions, I think. Um, and that seems to be something I've seen characterize Anglo-Catholic uh, interaction with 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 uh, different things. We have a very limited and, and I think local parochial view of you know our the field of our action. I would say Anglo Catholics, you know, they're they're more inclined to to be attentive to their kind of their their parish, right? Their parish communities um, and and less global maybe in their in their sense. They would see like, oh yeah, you know, we, we can come alongside and support a local diocese or a parish in another place, but. That it's that parish's job to minister to their community, and um, and I think that that grounds our our practice of of of, of any whatever we could say is like an activism or a or a social uh, you know a social wing of our of our practice. It's in that it's it's couched in what are the local concerns that the parish can identify, partner with local people, and then begin to support on that local level, and then you know we 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 kind of leave it from there. The only thing I would add to these answers, which I think are helpful and largely agree with, are two really short books, if you can get a hold of them. I think I found both of them on Abe Books. Um, the first is Mark Chapman has a little booklet about Conrad Knoll, in which he does detail some of the early Anglo-Catholic political fault lines and um, and and what that looked like. Of course, the, there's the whole context of the slum priests who worked with the, the poor in London and all that. So that's a really helpful little book. And then the other is also a short little book by Kenneth Leach called The Anglo-Catholic Social Conscience, Two Critical Essays. And it's very short, but I actually read that as we were preparing for our Catholic social teaching season. And uh, you do find a lot of this, those same principles emphasized um, in ways that are helpful. So yeah, those are two great resources if you're interested in, in how all that played out, especially early on in the movement. Um, now I think it is diverse enough, especially when you compare America and England. I think in England, most Anglo-Catholics will tend to be fairly liberal politically. In America, you'll have a mix. Um, it will depend on which jurisdiction you're in and, and who you're talking to even um, in terms of where they fall. You definitely have a lot of really conservative Anglo-Catholics and a lot of more liberal Anglo-Catholics in the United States. And that therefore, it's hard to carve out principles that would apply to everyone. Um, all right. Father, so our final. Oh, go ahead. I just want to. I just want to add one small thing about uh, what Father Hayden brought up: the kind of local approach um, to engagement. I think that's really important. Um, so parishes have their own context, and parish priest is going to minister within a particular context. Um, so I think that, you know, understanding how your neighborhood, how your parish, um, how it engages with things and, and its particular needs and its um, situation also, you know, will color sort of political engagement to some extent. Um at the end of the day, uh, I always try to remind people that as we engage with uh, politics, 
you know, we're, we're, we're Catholics first and foremost, that's, that is the thing, right? And so our, our engagement is primarily from a Christian perspective, right? So that's the first place we go. And depending on where we are, that may or may not align with a p- particular political party or, um, you know, a group of, of, of individuals, but, you know, our, our political, um, lives are secondary or, or even lower down, um, than our Christian life. Um, and so I think, you know, uh, a neighborhood or a church in a, in a suburb is going to have a very different experience to a, to an urban church. Um, and so we have to understand that and we have to be, I think, somewhat flexible, um, in how we how we engage contextually, all while being rooted in what has been revealed to us in the Catholic faith. It's uh, not very easy to to do. No, it's way it's, way harder than especially you, not to do well. Yeah, I think I think it's harder than you know if if there was some prescribed political theory. You know, uh, here is the political th- theology we sort of ascribe to, and then that's all you have to do. Um, yes, yes, but it's it's much more nuanced than that, and I think honestly, that that results in a fuller, more faithful Christian approach. Yeah, yeah. Well, our two probably biggest criticisms of the podcast have been in the in the past that either we're too conservative or too liberal, which leads me to think we're probably doing something right. Um, <laughs> everyone is mad <laughs> everyone is angry yes yes yeah when we released the christian nationalism episode we we heard some things um but you know hey got to do what you got to do all right our last question also from christian how, how far we've come in in ecumenical dialogue that you know back in the day in england we would have just run him out of the country or put him in prison but today we're actually answering his questions on our podcast so it's a good good progress that we've made over the past 500 years um, he asks, what can Christians learn from non-Christian religions? So very similar question to the philosophy question, but maybe a little different. Are there any doctrines or spiritual disciplines that Christians could benefit from engaging with other religions on? Is there anything in church history that you can point to on this topic? I'm going to read a thing from a theologian to you fathers, and I want you to tell me which theologian do you think said it, okay, to help answer this question. None can know God of himself. His nature can only be known by him. Reason ran after him, but did not make it. Weakness hastened on the path and found him. It was his mercy that said, know me, or else no reason or intellect could know him. How can our mere senses his truth perceive? How can a nut rest on a sliding dome? Reason can take you to his door, but only his grace can take you beyond. By reason alone, one cannot get there. Like others before you, do not commit that folly. His grace is our guide on this path. His works are guide and witness to him. O you who are incompetent to know yourself, how can you ever know God? Since you know not his first step, how will you know him as he is? I'm going to abstain from answering this because I know who this is. Oh, man, that's not fair. You just answer it then. (laughs) You know it. (laughs) You you have an obligation to share the truth here. I think I, I think I played this game with Father Creighton maybe already. I I will say this: um, in my bedroom, there's a copy of that 
Oh, really? Yeah. Nice. Well, I'll I'll can give it. You, to you. Can you give me a give me a like a range of of like centuries? Uh, I guess I could. Yeah. Um, I'm actually not very familiar with this person in general, but basically, uh, uh, 11th to 12th century. Okay. And not Hugh of St. Victor. Okay. That would have been, that actually would have been, was, was where I was, my mind was going because it sounds like something he would say. Yeah. Um, so if it's not him, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Who is it? Uh, Sinai Gonzavi, Gonzavi, who is a Sufi poet. Oh, one. Oh yeah. 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 So, um, to answer the question, uh, I, in my view, because of how we've talked about nature and grace because of how we talked about truth. I think we can conceive of all religions participating in the truth in some way to varying degrees. Um, this does not supplant the fact that all truth is rooted and in, in and comes from Jesus Christ quite the opposite. I think it's because the logos has uh, is the sort of underlying logic of the universe that, that this can be true. Um, and again, th this is kind of an entryway into um into uh, inviting people into the full truth. But I also do think there's something fruitful about close listening and or maybe slow listening to other religions, not trying to make hasty connections between what we do and what they do, um, either positive or negative, but actually hearing their rationale and kind of understanding where they come from um, that dialogue is really important and dialogue has to happen when both parties are speaking on their terms. And so for us to be fruitful, I think we have to do that work. I think there's that story about Francis, right? Where he went to, uh, was it Egypt maybe? And met with a Sultan and, and told the people he was with that they weren't going to try to convert them, that they were just going to listen. Um, and there's something I think, uh, virtuous about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, S Sufi poetry is a fascinating like little sub bit of this because um gets into some really interesting stuff. And I think it'll we be should do a Sufi episode someday. I yeah. think a lot a lot of people are probably somewhat familiar with Rumi, I'm sure. It's a bit very popular. Uh, but there's a lot more than Rumi out there. Um but I think it makes a good point that uh we sort of approach it the same way as the philosophy question there's extending yeses and extending no's but it's also just a good i think it's a good thing uh for people to speak to each other about their religion about their pursuit of um of god and also to understand that the conversation uh while being beneficial to one's you know knowledge um, it's also it's also a very humanizing endeavor to speak to somebody about their religion um, and to in a really a respectful way, you know, maybe maybe extend those yeses and nos in that conversation um, as, again, a, a, a sort of way to sort of engage uh, critically and comparatively. Uh, my 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 background is in comparative philosophy and there was a lot of engagement and comparative religion in that as well um and so i think it's important to see at least the very principle that that the human person is seeking god um and uh as as uh, father schmemann put in for the life of the world um 
you know, Homo sapiens certainly, but also Homo adorans, right? We are, we are worshipers, and we share that across cultures, across time, across uh, you know, vast distances. And so, there is this uh, attempt to to understand God that's going on uh, in other religions, and we can extend a yes to where those religions indeed speak the truth. Um, I had a, an interesting thing that I thought about when I read this question about any doctrines or spiritual disciplines that could, you know, the, that Christians could benefit from. And I'll say, I don't think there's anything specific to other religions that Christianity doesn't touch, that doesn't address. But I think some other religions are better at it than your average modern Christian. Um, in certain ways. So the thing that came up in my mind was uh, a way to put it is sort of the humane treatment of animals and uh, the humane sort of processing of food. Um, and two religions that do this a whole lot better than Christians are Judaism and Islam. Um, so the the kosher processing and the halal processing of uh, of food uh, and then the engagement with um, animals is really important. Uh, and I think Christianity speaks the same truth, right? So this it's it's not like Christianity is deficient on this um, from a theological standpoint. But I think those other religions could help us better recover and understand how we engage with that particular point, for instance. Uh, we are custodians of creation. We have been given uh, a beautiful gift in the fact that we were created and that, that we inhabit this beautiful world that God created for us. Um, and so our job is to take care of it, not to abuse it. Um, and that means we should be better about how we you know, process our food. It should be better about what we put in our bodies. It should be, we should be better about the kinds of food that we eat. Um, and, you know, we're reminded of this liturgically um, in, in feasting and fasting. Um, but, you know, we do, we need, we need to take care of the, uh, of the creation around us. And so we need to be reminded of that. And I think other religions can do a good job of helping remind us of those sorts of things. And I think one thing, maybe to step back for a second and, and, go to a more meta level is that when we're having engagements with non-Christians of, of other religions, that it can be helpful maybe to enter the conversation with a posture of wonder that seeks to ask a lot of questions rather than to defend or attack. Um, I had a parishioner who grew up Catholic um, and he went to St. John's college here in Annapolis after uh, serving in the military. And, uh, while he was there, someone told him, if you really want to know the English language, read Shakespeare, the King James, and the prayer book. And so he started coming to our church because we have two of those three things. Um, actually, we have complete works of Shakespeare in the library. So we have all three of those things. And um, and his brother, interestingly, is a Buddhist priest who lives in San Francisco. And he was in town visiting a couple months ago. And so my parishioner had us all go get coffee together. 
And so it was like a joke, you know, an Anglican priest and a Buddhist priest walk into a coffee shop. Um, but it was really a cool conversation. Like I had a great time talking to him and we did not debate. It was just kind of like, hey, like, what does a service look like for you? What do you do? You know, what, is, what do you believe about this or how do you do this? And, you know, tons of interesting overlaps uh, with with Christian insights. Like at times I felt like I was talking to a, a, a living desert father you know, in his discussion about uh, avoiding attachment and stuff like that. Or um, he was talking about at the beginning of their service, they do um, a chant where they recount all of the their spiritual teachers in their sort of genealogy. And it was like, oh, like the lineage of the saints, you know, or apostolic succession or something. And um, so it's just really cool to kind of see it and, and, and to have a constructive discussion rather than a debate or, you know, me trying to convert him or whatever. Um, you know, I, I think there was something fruitful about that. And it made me kind of think about my own practices and, you know, how do I deal with attachment and how do I deal with asceticism and, and those kind of things. So I, I think there can be something really fruitful when we go into things, uh, seeking to ask questions. And of, of course, that doesn't mean we, um, you know, uh, we shouldn't be so unstable that a conversation like that unroots us, but rather makes us better at what we are. I, I think that that's really fruitful. I think, you know, I think to tag, tag along with that, it is, uh, it's useful to approach and to, to interact with other religions because um, it reveals the way that, you know, that Christianity really isn't just another religion. Um, and I think that Schmemann points this out too in the For the Life of the World. He says that actually, you know, uh, you, when you try to put Christianity in dialogue with other religions, it, it doesn't really work in the end, you know, and the, but that's an important thing to realize through experience of doing so and not to just be told that that's what's going to happen. And so skip over that. There's something meaningful in our formation with, um, you know, really asking that question of, is this just one more among many? And, and we find that it actually isn't just that Christianity is, um, is, is, you know, an optimized world religion, right? That it's just a, of the of the highest degree. It actually is of its own kind, um, and that it, that's a significant you know threshold to cross as a Christian. Um, you know that we're not just you know it's not a relatively optimal truth or or revealed truth. It is it is or it is the truth itself, right? Toward which all these other things are are yearning, and it is the answer to all of that yearning. Um, it is it is life. Towards all, uh, towards any aspiration for life, life that is given uh, in that direction, and so I think. Uh, but you, you know, you could be told that, but it's meaningful to go and, and learn that. And actually, you're we get formed in all kinds of helpful ways by going and doing that practically. Um, one is like you pointed out, Father West. This, um, you know, sometimes we we approach, you know, in as I see contemporary Christians approaching other religions through the lens of. I'm going to combat, I'm going to overwhelm, I'm going to out-argue, and we start with debate. And I'm not saying there isn't, you know, somewhere along the line, someplace for a meaningful, even, you know, public debate between things. Um, I'm just saying that we, we jump there right away a lot of the time, and um, and it and it's a it's an it's not the best foot forward for Christians, and it's it's really a, a, a it's counterproductive and kind of an embarrassment to the cause of Christ when we approach others. Um, aiming to dismantle them. Um, and, and it ends up just kind of uh, communicating a lack of confidence in our own beliefs um, because we, we have to go out kind of uh, dogging people into believing what we're believing. And we, we, it doesn't speak to any kind of security we might have in our own beliefs and our own convictions. So um, I think 
actually interacting with real people who 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 believe differently than us as is is you know hands down better than than you know kind of learning a lot about and you know engaging online against certain isms and ologies and you know and anities and and all of these things because you know we find that the real practitioners of anything including christianity are a lot different than than you know the the hermetically sealed vision of it uh and that's illuminating you know we we end up I think being reinforced in what is truly said, you know, what we what we truly find in Christ by interacting with those who have something that's truly said in the way that they have come to believe. That was a very convicting answer, Father Hayden. I feel like I have to cancel our next two episodes. Father Hayden drinks seek tears, and Father Creighton destroys Zoroastrian college student. I know it's, a, it's such good clickbait. though, you know, we gotta drive those ratings. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But I, I, I was picking up what you were dropping down, Father West, of, of doing a, an episode on, on Sufism. And, I, and I, I just want to know, I want you to know that I know this is just your secret way of having an episode about me without you yes. uh, and, our, and our mutual love of it. So, uh, yeah, I, yes. I see what you did there. Yeah, yeah. No, listeners, uh, Father Hayden and I love a band called Me Without You, where the singer was raised by a Jewish mother and a Muslim father, but they met at a Sufi Muslim college group. And uh, and then he kind of went evangelical for a while and then was into some Anabaptist like uh, like communal living type stuff. And then I think it's currently back in in Sufi uh, territory. He um, the last time I saw them perform, he was wearing a, like a, a hat, traditional hat and stuff. But a lot of his lyrics are inspired by Rumi and other uh, Sufi poets. And even his stage presence is very much reminiscent to like a whirling dervish. Um, so great band, Me Without You, uh, definitely look them up. In fact, there's a podcast. Have you listened to the podcast, Us Without Them? Father? No, I, I haven't yet. It's a no. podcast. They go song by song. It's a it's a religion professor from Northern Virginia and a couple of friends of his. And they go song by song through the Me Without You category, ca- catalog uh, from the first album forward, uh, where they kind of do a deep dive into each song, the lyrics and the musical composition. It's very thorough and it's excellent. It's really fun listening. I think you'd like it. Well, I know what I'm doing for Christmas tide now. That's uh, yeah, yeah. That's on the docket. Excellent, excellent. Yes, go listen to me without you. What's your favorite me without you song, Father Hayden? That's a tough one. Um, my is- favorite one is it's probably a tie between the King Beetle on the Coconut Estate, um, yeah. which which ends with a recurring refrain from the sayings of the Desert Fathers: "Why not be utterly changed into fire." Uh, and is a haunting song that my wife does not like. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, the other one would probably be, um, it was one actually, the one that touches the heart um, a lot is uh, a stick, a carrot, and a string, um, which is a meditation on the nativity that I always listen to around Christmas time. And it culminates with a, with a, with a, a really intimate portrait of, of our Lord in Gethsemane. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and I won't spoil the ending for you, but you should go listen to it. It's, it's, it's great. How about you? Every thought, a thought of you is great. Um, and speaks to a lot of the themes we've been talking about tonight about kind of God being everywhere and truth being everywhere. Um, and I think, uh, probably Julia, um, from their most recent album, um, which is a great combination of 1984, the novel and Rumi. (laughs) which is excellent description. It was it literally the verses are about Julia and the chorus is from Rumi. Right. And Ze- Zechariah. It's very fascinating. He's he's their lyrics are fantastic and, and definitely worth uh, just reading, even if you don't like their music very much. Father Creighton, what's your favorite me without you song? <laughs> don't throw me in like that. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I I like me without you, but I'm definitely not like a super fan. Like I I listened to them and had friends that were into them and like have always enjoyed it, but I've never I've never done the like catalog deep dive. Hmm. Well, maybe um maybe so I should. Maybe we'll have to do an episode on that next season. Sounds like fun. By the way, your your advent playlist is is just fire. It's oh yeah, really, I really am enjoying it. Yeah. Oh well, thank you. Yes, it's a it's an interesting mix of like traditional hymns and weird contemporary music. Maybe I'll yeah. maybe I'll put that in the show notes. Father Wes's advent. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, I think. Well, we're all into me without you. Some of us more than others. Some, you know, like we said, truth is everywhere. Some people participated in it more or less. Father Creighton participates in it a little less than Father Hayden and I do. Um, we're going to make you a me without you fan and a Dallas Cowboys fan, and then we'll have done our job. That's right. You'll be fully swimming in the truth. So let's talk about what we're into. Father Creighton, we'll start with you. What are you into these days? That's not me without you or the Dallas Cowboys. Um. Well, we talk. <laughs> I'm going to do two. One's kind of serious, and one's a joke. Um. But uh father wes your your uh recent post on the discord about ultimate general civil war uh i'm kind of into that now um it's just a civil war real-time strategy game um and yeah you know you can play as ulysses s grant or sherman whoever uh um, ulysses s grant pray for us so yeah uh that that game it, it's very addicting so watch out if you if you're interested in playing it it, it is a great game i don't <laughs> but, play a lot of video games or do a lot of gaming uh but i do quite enjoy that i like a, the historical value of course right i mean i like a strategy game so i'm kind of a sucker for that i like a total war game or you know civ 6 or whatever it is like i i'm i'm going to be into those we should do a sacramentalist civ 6 game That'd be pretty fun. That would be. Um, my my more serious thing, though, is um, it's a, a novel, and it is absolutely stunning. It's called The Longships by Franz Bingson. Um, here's, the, here's the cover. Um, it's really, really, really good. Um, originally written in a Swedish recent translation, oh, semi-recent translation, um, and it's a fantastic, uh, his, you know, novel, historical fiction um, about Vikings and sort of, you know, the the gory, nasty Viking invasions and whatnot. Uh, super interesting, really well written, and uh, like a like a real time strategy game. I'm a sucker for historical fiction, so had had to add that to the to the reading list. Father Wes, what are you into? Oh, gosh. Um, two things as well. It's been a while since we've recorded, so I feel like I've accumulated things I'm into. The first is uh, the game Diplomacy, um, which is a board game that's like Risk, but without any of the luck. And so you get together with a bunch of friends, and you take all day to play, and you drink a lot, and you smoke cigars, and you backstab each other um, using early mid 20th early to mid 20th century geopolitics and so uh yeah we have a group at our church that's been playing it and uh aiden who's a member of our discord uh who goes to my parish uh i played it now with him twice and both times have found ways to backstab 
his own priest. Oh, poor guy. Um, so that's been really fun playing that. We try and get together once every couple of months on a Saturday and do that. And the other is more serious. The other is an essay uh, from a book called Lux Mundi, uh, which was sort of an early 20th century or late 19th century uh, collection of essays by Anglo-Catholics who are trying to um, basically talk about how Anglo-Catholicism was relevant to the modern world. Um, and so there are a series of essays and they do different things and they talk about different subjects. But I've been really interested in Charles Gore's essay, Inspiration and the Holy Ghost, which is his attempt to engage with critical biblical scholarship that was kind of common in his day uh, from an Anglo-Catholic perspective. And I think there's a lot of fruit there. Listeners might know that I did work in biblical studies and then I took a couple classes with Dr. Hans Borsma and couldn't do it anymore. Um in good conscience, but I think Gore's essay is a really good call to engaging with the um, with the critical scholarship around in biblical studies without necessarily selling the farm in terms of the underlying metaphysics. And I think this makes sense with like a a proper view of the four causes that uh, biblical scholarship can help us discern the meaning of the literal sense of the text there's a lot of fruitful inquiry that we can gain from that, but that the ultimate meaning of the text is God given and, you know, testifies to Christ and all that. And so um, we don't have to be scared of, of higher criticism so much um, as, as actually we should be excited, I think, to engage with it. And I think his essay really paves the way for that. I don't agree with all of his tendencies in the essay. I think he can be a little, um, and I, I think you even see this in some circles today where there's a little bit, um, I, I would, I guess a minimalism, like, well, what do we have to assert that we believe? What can we get rid of is the sort of approach. And I think there is maybe something not very helpful in that. Um, but overall, I think it's a really helpful essay and I would like to write something about it. I'm, I'm kind of working on what that will look like a little bit, but anyway, so I've been, I've been reading and thinking about that a lot lately. Father Hayden, what are you into these days? Uh, good question. Um, you know, uh, the first thing that, that I have been getting into since the last time we recorded was um, I woke up my um, sourdough starter from its hibernation. Uh, my, I'm a longtime sourdough uh, baker, and my uh, starter turns 10 this year. Uh, so it's 10 years old, um, and it's the same one uh, all throughout. And it's got some really great characteristics to it, but uh, you know, when in busier seasons, I will you know give it a good feed and then put it in the fridge to let it hibernate. Uh, and uh, and I, so I woke it up uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, and uh, coaxed it back into uh, like lively activity. And and now it's uh, it's on and cracking. Uh, we've got sourdough happening in the Butler household, um, and so I've got um, some dough proofing downstairs uh, from uh, at the parish right now. And uh, Every you know hour and a half, I've been going down and doing the stretch and fold, and, you know, and 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 building the gluten of it. And tonight we'll shape the loaves and uh, and get ready for uh, to proof it uh, in the fridge and then bake it tomorrow. So it'll be a, it's a it's a it's I found it to be a really meaningful kind of uh, you know timeline to live throughout the week. It, plus, it produces you know really t tasty bread, uh, and the family really likes eating it, and and uh, my kids just devour it. So um, so that's been a fun return to that. Um, just working with. Uh, dough. I really like things that um, that people have been doing for like thousands of years. That uh, that are it's four ingredients, right? It's you know it's flour, it's salt, it's water, and air. And 
and that's it. That's it. You know, and, and, and really it's all about the technique and the timing and the temperature and like, it just, I found it that it really reconnects me to something that's not cerebral and, uh, uh, and then it gives me some time to think about things while I'm not thinking about things. Uh, so it's been, it's been good. And plus bread's awesome. So that, that's been one of the things uh, that I've been doing uh, again over the last uh, few weeks. Uh, the second thing is um, I've been reading this book actually um, that was produced by Lexum Press uh, recently. It's a, it's a, it's a series of kind of personal meditations by a guy who was uh, going to be an Anglican priest and then kind of fell out of the discernment process as he began to struggle uh, incredibly with uh, clinical depression and, and uh, anxiety disorder. Uh, and, uh, and he writes, uh, he writes this meditation on, uh, on kind of spirituality and, and really meditative prayer when, um, there's, there's things happening in your head that you can't trust, you know, when, when you kind of have a voice in your head, that's telling you untrue things. Um, and it's a really powerful memoir. Um, it's called a quiet mind to suffer with, um, uh, by, uh, let's see. By Bryant, I'm, I'm losing the first name. Um, it's I think it, it's uh, yeah, uh, but it's by a, a, and the author's last name is Bryant. A, a quiet mind to suffer with, and uh, it's a it, yeah. I, I found it to be a meaningful way of um, you know sort of entering into that space where we sometimes take for granted that you know quietness of mind is is attainable, um, and for you know many people um, it's not. Uh, and so, how do we pastor people in the midst of? Um, serious psychological maladies, you know, and, and this book has been really illuminating and good food for thought on that. That's a very important topic. We did have a conversation with uh, Scott Harrower and uh, Preston Hill, I think, on that mm-hmm. topic recently, w- within recent memory. That was, uh, they're they're really doing a lot of good writing on that topic. And Lexham Press in general has kind of, I think, decided to focus on that. And I'm yeah. very thankful for it because they, they do a lot of good work. Yeah. Excellent. Well, listeners, thank you for tuning in this season. It has been a pleasure as always. We're still just uh, kind of thrilled and I think surprised that anybody really listens or engages with us. Uh, a couple of priests shouting into the void here on the internet, but uh, but it's been awesome and we're happy to do this journey with you. And uh, we're very happy that Father Hayden is joining us now. It's been great having a, having a third party here. And uh, I think we really he really filled out the show nicely and, and we greatly appreciate your contributions, father. So thank you for joining us. And thank we look you for forward, having me. Yeah. yeah we look forward to a real to, privilege. We look forward to next season. And like I said, we'll do lots of interesting topics and, um, and good conversations and, and really insightful and smart guests. So, uh, yeah, can't wait to do it. So father Hayden, would you, uh, would you close us with a blessing? Certainly the Lord be with you and with thy spirit. Let us pray. O God, by whom the meek are guided in judgment, and light riseth up in darkness for the godly, grant us in all our doubts and uncertainties the grace to ask what thou wouldest have us to do, that the spirit of wisdom may save us from all false choices, and that in thy light we may see light, and in thy straight path may not stumble. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who with thee in the unity of the Holy Spirit liveth and reigneth one God, world without end.